Pitch Deck Asia. Your story, your words. We're live. This is Pitch Deck Asia. Graham Brown in the studio, joined by Paul Byrne from Dublin, Currency Fair. Paul, welcome. Thank you. Welcome to Singapore. Thank you. Glad to be here in the heat. A bit of a flying visit. How long are you here for? Uh, here for a week. Yeah. Yeah. To launch. To launch and promote Currency Fair, like we've been in, in Singapore now for a couple of months, but yeah. we're now re really at the point where we can start to scale the business locally. We have people on the ground, team of people here to support customers, so we're really here to promote the brand. Great. Well, it's good to see you here. We're seeing a lot of activity in the fintech space, currency transfers, new banks coming up all over. There seems to be a lot of disruption going on, and there seems to be a lot coming out of Ireland at the moment. What's going on? What, what is Ireland producing? Well, Ireland is like a small country, same population as Singapore, effectively. So in order to get on in the world, you have to kind of either move abroad or start a business to export abroad because there's not a very small domestic market. So consequently, a huge number of Irish startups go uh, go global early. Yeah. So therefore, they get a lot more recognition early to get international venture capital funding early and they scale earlier than, than, say, traditional companies might do in other countries where you can survive in the UK for a couple of years. Right. It's a big, big market or in Germany or France. So we tend to push out early and go global early because we have no choice. Yeah. There's a bit of hustle there as well from the <laughs> Irish, isn't it? They're not afraid <laughs> yeah. to... Not afraid of hard work. Yeah, well, exactly. I mean, your background, we're just talking about off-air. I think it's quite interesting to sort of probe a little bit. You're the CEO of Currency Fair. You're also a bit of an entrepreneur yourself. So what's the story there? If you go way back... We'll go way back. I grew up on a farm. So yeah. my, my parents obviously ran their own business as a farm. So literally, we were schooled early on managing cash flow and hard and hard work. And then I went in college, I did the accountancy route, as it was good training. Like I yeah. do, do think being able to understand numbers is a basic tenant now for any business, particularly when people get much more focused on customer experience and growth and scaling. It still comes back to how do you, how do you actually manage the whole thing? Yeah. So after that, then I did get into business. I was fortunate to work for two entrepreneurs who really taught me a lot about actually running your own business at a scale level. Cause I mean, we actually went public on NASDAQ. So we were public for about 10 years and did really well. And then I started my own companies. So I just got the book, I guess, and I guess it was always in me from growing up on a farm. So uh, the first one was a software company, which was um, treasury management. So I was in payments as well. Yeah. And that did, that did quite well. The second one was a healthcare, completely different healthcare business. And that was comes back to, I think, my whole ethos around how to help people and how to actually make people's lives a bit better. And that did, that, that did quite well. And then lastly, we did a, an accountancy software um, business, which we sold to a VC. Um, was a VC backed and sold to a private equity firm. Mm. So that led me then to retire, which wow. lasted a whole six months. <laughs> yeah, that didn't last. No, that didn't last. You long got at bored. All. Got bored, and you uh, like making, yeah, and like getting like, out there and hustling and like doing growing things. Stuff. Yeah. yeah, exactly, doing things, helping people, and that's what we've always tried to do. We really try to build, and every business we've been involved in is build a community approach to actually help yeah. people. Even in the accounting business, we were building a community of users who had the same common issues. And Currency Fair is not different. In fact, I was a customer of Currency Fair. That's how I mm. came in contact mm. with the company. And then I, then I got involved with one of the VCs who I've known for about 25 years, and I invested in the company. And then I got much more involved in helping out, helping out, and I just became the CEO. What was the pitch to you then? Like, Paul, we need you as a CEO. When you were like, okay, no, well, I've kind of done all that. I, I've kind of semi-retired now. I'm happy to be an investor. What was the conversation like when they said, look, we need you on to run the ship? Uh, well, I think what happened was, when I, because I knew how it worked because I'd been a customer, right? And I always liked it because, you know, I was able to save a fair bit of money doing international money transfers. 
And then when I came in to meet the people, it was really mm. about the people. And I got the message from the, some of the original founders about, look, we were, we're really here to help people in a community-based approach by yeah. matching, matching on a peer-to-peer model, you know, people who were buying and selling currencies. And I like the whole idea of like matching people and people being able to set their own rate in the whole marketplace. Mm. But what really got me was, I think, the ability to scale it and take it global and go, you know what? Like the founders had this vision of fair financial services for all. That's where the name currency fair comes from. Mm. So the idea of actually making it fair for everybody and, and not going after one particular segment of you know wealthy people or whatever, really, I think, gave me a view of an opportunity to make something happen and do something different. Yeah. And that's what we've been doing. So that's why we raised our funding in Asia because we think Asia is way underrepresented by fintech companies generally. Yeah, definitely. There's definitely a need. There's a huge underbanked population across Asia and we think we can help with that. And um, to be honest, there's still massive flows into Asia from, let's call it the West, right? Um, where people have to send money back to help families at home. And, mm. and unfortunately, they end up paying the most yeah. and getting the, the worst possible value for what they do. So we, we thought like if we can help all these people by building this community-based approach, then we'd have achieved something interesting and done something different. And our whole management team's background is all is unique. Like everybody in our company has been successful somewhere else. And they all came together to serve this common purpose. So, you know, that's what I find quite quite unusual about yeah. what we're trying to do. So Okay. Well we'll dive into the problem yeah. in a minute, understand what the sort of existing solutions are that are out there and you're trying to sort of disrupt that. The Asian part is interesting. Obviously you're here, you've raised funds here. If you look at the, the macro trends here in Asia, you've got two-thirds of the world's middle class will be living here in Asia by 2030. That's going to go from like 700 million to three and a half billion. Mm. So you just think about the size of that market. These are all middle-class consumers who whose parents don't have any sort of legacy banking. It's not like I bank at NatWest or, you know, Citibank because my parents bank there. So, you know, I'm not going to therefore go there and do my currency transfers or with this company. So they're almost like there's a gap for somebody to fill for these just under 3 billion customers there. And then you've got all the unbanked as well who don't have credit. And if you look, for example, at what's happening in China in you know, with the, the lack of credit, you know, you've got all these consumers who don't have credit. So they're turning to companies which are coming out of different sectors who aren't banks to solve all their sort of financial problems. And I find that fascinating. I think you know, you're going to see the shape of financial services, the future's going to land here first in Asia before it is in the rest of the world. So I, mean, I, I totally get why you're here now. You're sort of bringing the expertise, mm. the arbitrage, if you are, in a like from Ireland over here. So let's talk about the problem that you're trying to fix. You said people don't get a good deal. What, what are the alternatives out there? There's the bank, there's the Western Union and et cetera. Is that what we're talking about? Yeah, well, t- t- traditionally, I suppose, b- people sent money internationally in two ways. You either did a bank-to-bank transfer, which means you used your bank. You probably pay between 2 and 3% of a margin for a foreign exchange. Plus, you probably pay maybe between 5 and 10 or maybe $20, depending on whether it was a wire transfer or not. And it took four or five days. Okay, mm. and that's, That was the traditional model. And no bank is incentivized to change that because you log on to your account. You have no idea what the rate is. You just take what you're given. And it's seamless, right? right? And the biggest defense mechanism a bank has is inertia, okay? Because customers just don't know what if there are alternatives. Hmm. And the second way was for people, let's call it the unbanked, you know, they send, they go, they lodge cash, whether it's Western Union or RIA or somebody, and they pay anything, depending on how competitive it is. If there's four or five stores side by side, they might get a fantastic deal. Hmm. If they go to some other agent, where there's only one agent, they might pay, you know, eight or 10%. So... 
you know, it's difficult. Um, so the problem we're trying to solve for really is how do you make it fair? How do you actually provide a seamless service where the wealthiest person pays the same margin percentage or the same cost as the people who can least afford it? Mm. And that's what currency, where Currency Fair came from, is this whole idea of fairness and financial inclusion and the idea that everybody should be treated equally. And that's what we do. Like We actually offer everybody the actual same price at the same point in time, irrespective of, of how big the transaction is. Right. So. You know, and that's what we're trying to build this community of people who are sending money to different places um, based on fairness. Well, why does that take a community rather than a, a financial system to do that? That it seems like the community is the only way to achieve that kind of fairness because maybe, is it because the financial systems can't service those people at the bottom at the same level of price that they can do at the top? Yeah, and I think it's just, it's just if you go back to the way businesses started, like, you know, banks by their very nature um, have huge infrastructures, you know, they have offices, they have branches. Yeah. They, the cost to, to a bank to open an account for someone who's sending 200 Singaporean dollars to, you know, somewhere else, right, is not, is, uh, is just prohibitive. So they're not interested in that particular segment particularly. So it's just the way it's evolved over, over time and it made it difficult. And then obviously Western Union have been hugely successful and they stepped in, you know, 20, 30 years ago to mm. solve, a, solve a need that nobody else was solving at the time. And now the market, I think, is evolving because people are getting better educated. You know, people now have access to smartphones. So everybody has access to the internet now. So you can actually do a search and find cheaper ways to send money or cheaper ways to do a money transfer. And so there's m more people are, are now interested in finding alternatives, more mm. people are interested in digital alternatives. So, you know, if you don't have to go to Lodge Cash somewhere, it makes it easier for people like ourselves to offer services because mm. it's all electronic. Now, we do offer cash loading in some countries as well. So it gets, it does get easier to have alternatives. And then where people like us come in, I think, is a more entrepreneurial approach, as in, well, look, you know, we understand there's a problem. We understand that we can fix it from the outside in as opposed to the inside out. And in any business, it's the same. Sometimes it's harder to fix something from the inside mm. than is a new entrant coming in. Uh, I think, though, one of the challenges new entrants have coming in is, though, a lot of people jump on this fintech bandwagon and they rock up and they're not necessarily properly regulated or they don't have proper pa partnerships in place, and then they think it's all easy, right? You know, I launched uh, three or four software guys coding away in the background. Yeah, That's not the way it works. So, like, you know, we, we built a team of people on, the co on a company that actually c can scale and grow and, and is, understands how business actually works, and we are, we're regulated actually in, in probably in a lot of countries. In fact, we're regulated probably in more countries than most banks are, because mm. banks traditionally only get regulated in one or two countries, right? Yeah. And then they go deep in that country by offering all types of services. Yeah. So, so we understand the need, and we understand how the need can be solved for basically by making it easy and seamless for people. So the three things we focus in on are price. Obviously, how do you make it affordable for people? How do you make it cheaper than anybody else? And how do you make it, um, I guess, a lot cheaper than banks? Uh, then how do you provide a service to people? Because ultimately, people still have to be able to contact you. They need to know their money is safe. They need to be able to trust you. And then lastly, how do you do it quickly? Yeah. Which is speed. So banks traditionally do it through correspondent banking, which is, you know, I have a, I'm a bank in Singapore. I have three partner banks around the world. I, all my business goes through them. It's very slow and it's very cumbersome and very expensive. Whereas people like us come along and we say, we'll open a bank account in every country. Mm. So we will, we will ultimately build our own global infrastructure, in which case everything is local, right? So you called it earlier POTS, but actually, you know, we don't look at it as POTS. We look at it as customer accounts yeah. in each country. So ultimately when somebody is doing a transfer with us. If they're selling one currency, they'll get the currency they want in the country, that home country where they need it. So that when mm. they do a local bank transfer, it's real time. 
So for example, in, in simple terms, you could decide to, you want to send Hong Kong dollars for, back to the UK. So you send a faster payments transaction in, in Hong Kong mm. into your account. You want sterling, faster payment, right? So literally in a couple of minutes, you can have money somewhere else in the UK out of Hong Kong for this, like same in Australia, the mm. same here with faster payments. So that's the way the world is evolving. So the whole correspondent banking is breaking down and people mm. will ultimately have to have models like ours because people want their money quickly. Mm. They want a good deal, right? Or, you know, a bill to save some money. And then they want to know that the company they're dealing with is trustworthy. So that's why things like Trustpilot are important mm. to us in terms of having a high Trustpilot score. Being regulated is important because ultimately that builds trust. And we also only deal with tier one banks. Mm. So while we compete with the banks, we also partner with them. So we would deal with people like Barclays, for example, um, DBS here actually in, in uh, Singapore and in Hong Kong. And they're fantastic banks to deal with because the larger the bank and the, more, the, the better the bank understands your market, the better service you can provide collectively. Mm basically as well. So that's what we that's what we build on this whole idea of trust and community, mm. which basically is, you know, people can know that that transaction is safe and it's going to happen in effectively nearly real time. Yeah. I mean, you, you've identified a problem which, I mean, a lot of now, there's been a focus in recent years with cryptocurrency, for example, and people saying, well, how can we get liquidity between markets and we can use this system? But the problem is trust, right? The average person doesn't put trust putting their money in that because it might not come out the other end. Yeah, you've got this sort of middle ground, which is not banking, it's not sort of these alternative vehicles to exchange money, but this huge market where people need to exchange money. I feel personally for myself that the challenge is time. Like the, the margins may be for one market an important factor, but for me transfers, the timing, the time it takes to get from A to B, and the fact that it hasn't really changed for like 30, 40 years, for me is like just unacceptable. When you consider now that we have delivery services that can deliver food in less than an hour, and you can have Amazon delivering in an hour, this whole sort of customer experience bar now has been raised in banking, in financial services, right, as well. But those banks haven't, maybe because of the, you know, the overheads and the infrastructure, they haven't moved on. You know, and you've got all these new players coming in now and saying, well, that's just unacceptable. We can get it in minutes. Is that what you're saying? Yep, I mean, can yeah, can I? If I just transfer back to the UK, you can get it. You can get it minutes. You can, some countries like India, we can do in real time. Um, right. Like ultimately, the objective is to try and have it real time. Now, real time for us is you know achievable depending on the local banking market. So in the UK, you have faster payments, mm. which effectively is a real time payment system for small payments. In uh, Hong Kong, you have it. Um, it's coming in, in the EU, but like what we call real time SEPA. It's coming in Australia. So it's going to ultimately happen pretty much in most countries. Mm. And then people like ourselves will be completely in real time everywhere. Um, but today it's real time, customer to customer. So if you want to transfer money, say, from one currency to another, that is real time. So you literally have that sterling, for example, in the UK, mm. in real time from sending it from Singapore. Now, what you do with it is up to you and how quickly you want to move it to somebody else. Because some people don't actually use it immediately. They, they want to know they have it. Hmm. And then maybe a few days later, they'll send it to a family yeah, yeah, member yeah. or pay a bill or they'll take That's the key part of it, right? Yeah. That knowing that it's going to come and it's not like, I think the, the, the problem with the correspondence banking system, as you say, is that, I mean, I remember sending money to India on, from business to business. And I remember it, you can send the money. The receiving party doesn't get notice of it. It doesn't arrive. And then it just disappears. It yeah. just disappears yeah. in the system. Like, where is the money? It yeah. must be somewhere, but nobody knows. And you actually have to phone around and you find out, actually, obviously, the, the standard AML checks. But then it just got held up. 
and you know unless you would have phoned up you never would have got the money either way so that was just incredible really and, that, and that, that hasn't exists. changed that hasn't actually changed it's still that's still the way it works you know um and the uh like so that's why people like ourselves are able to provide a great service because it does happen quickly or real mm. near real time um and that therefore you know, people don't have to get worried about it because the most stressful thing, actually, funny enough, is when your money goes missing. Yes. Right? Because it is your money. And that's the one thing that yeah. we're very conscious of. Like, so, for example, every account we operate is a client fund account. So, we currency fair doesn't touch the money at all. Mm. So, and we've set it up that way deliberately. So, literally, if you're, use, if you're a currency fair customer, the money is your, in your account, in your name, and it can never be touched only by you. So, even mm. if you rang up and said, oh, can you please transfer money from A to B? We, we say, no, we can't do that because it's your account, your, your money. You, you have to go online and do it. Mm. So you have an app, obviously, on the phone or you go on the computer. And that actually, again, builds trust with people because they know, oh, my money is safe. So yeah. my money is actually with the bank and not with currency fare. And, yeah. it, you know, it's like, it's, and it, it, the model works very well, client funds, because it gives people more comfort. Mm. And you're right, you said earlier about being in control. So the marketplace model we operate gives people total control because mm. they can set their own exchange rate. They can... Look and go, oh, today's not a good day. I'll wait till tomorrow because sterling might get better or Singapore mm. dollar might get better or the US dollar might change. And people, it's not that they become experts, it's, but we just give them control. Mm. And then obviously when you do the exchange, you get the money in real time. Yeah. In the, in, so then, then you can spend it as you wish. And a lot of that, a lot of that's what happens to people, like particularly in the UK market with Brexit at the moment, mm. is if sterling appreciates at all, we get a huge influx of people transferring sterling into some other currency, generally euros. Uh, and then if sterling's having a down day, you find that liquidity or volume is quite low yeah. uh, because people just are forming views and opinions, um, but they have total control. Mm. And they know it's all real time. So it's not as if, oh, sterling is bad today. I better transfer money. Oh, it'll take me four days to get the money because I'm using a bank. Yeah. It all happens in real time. It's all visible. You can see it and you can actually see it pretty much on your phone happening in real time. Your balance changes straight away mm. from one currency to another currency. Well, I want to have a look. I want to just um, jump on the website if we can. Have a look at your currency fair website yeah. and then um just so i understand i mean this is pretty standard what you're showing here in terms of the money transfer but yeah. using this as an example can you explain how this actually works because i'm always fascinated by how this works because you know what is the the rocket science behind this and like compared to how it would normally work with a bank or you know maybe even a western union mm. for example so um if we just scroll down here obviously there's all the account opening and stuff like yeah. that but the actual transaction point like Okay, the, the best part is, is like you don't need to look inside under the hood to understand how it works. No. But like, let's say you take l this. Take the calculator, just right yeah, there. Calculator right? Here. Okay. So I want to transfer, let's say yeah. I want to transfer 15,000 Sing dollars to um, Ireland. So I'm going to do it in euros. Yeah. Um, euros, yeah. Okay, so I'm going to get just under 10,000. Yeah. It's not a bad rate, actually. Okay, so um, $3 euro fee. Yeah. Sorry, 3 euro fee. Um, you say, okay, so saving 272 against a typical bank. But apart from the savings, what's the difference? If I did this normally, if I went in and, like, you know, I filled out the form in the bank, which would have to be a paper form, right? Mm. And I have to wait in the queue for an hour to get it done. I'd do that normally in a bank. They would then effectively send a message to the bank in Ireland and say, like, we just need to deduct from here and add here, right, into this person's account. And then we need to do some checks as well. That's how it would normally yeah, happen. Yeah, right? well, normally if, you, if you're doing it from here, unless you, had, unless you had a personal bank account in Ireland, yeah, right, you obviously, um, you couldn't do it. Right? Or you could send somebody else. If you're yeah. paying, say, sending money to a family member or paying a bill or something, you could do it to the, and you'd have to have the I-ban for the person. Mm. So the way, the way, and that would take a couple of days, right, because, you know, what happens is, 
the bank here sends like a swift code message to the bank in Europe to say, this money has been deposited, please pay it out. Yeah. And the money has to physically, effectively flow in a ledger, but the ledger takes maybe two or three days because most banks don't clear in real time. They clear like a batch, which means overnight. Mm. So you straight away have lost a full day before, so before the, the bank actually gets the money, say in Europe. So it, whereas we're different is, you're on, you go online, you, the money's in your account because you've already transferred it in, mm. right? Or you have the balance sitting there. Um, you decide you want euros, you, you exchange it on the site, and immediately you have euros, mm. right? In in a bank account in our in a, in Ireland, mm. right? Which actually with Barclays, in your name. Now you can then decide I'm paying a bill, or I'm going to leave the money in euros because you know I, w- I might want it in two weeks' time. I'm going there, or I wanted I'm going to Spain or Germany or somewhere else where I might need euros, and the money sits there, right? But but it all happens in real time, and that's the biggest thing from a time point of view. Like you know, go back to your discussion about deliveries on Amazon. Yeah. Yeah, we make the delivery of currency real time. Mm. Okay, that's what we're doing. Um, and then our, from our point of view is that it's up to the customer because it's their money to do whatever they wish with the money, right? Mm. And spend it. Like once they spend it in a way that, that is, consi- is lawful. Yeah. Right. Because <laughs> yeah. ultimately we are regulated. So, yeah, exactly. You, know, you have to make sure the money that's crossing borders isn't from nefarious yeah, it's, parties. It's, yeah, exactly. And we do a lot of work on that. And that's yeah. back to this whole thing of trust, you know, yeah, and, yeah. And, and, and it's a big thing in fin- the fintech world because there's this constant balance between mm. the customer experience and the need to, accept, to be, do the right thing by the regulator and by the law, mm. right? So we are on the side of doing the right thing. So we constantly ask a lot of questions of customers um, about like the source of their funds. Mm. And if you've got a business account, we'll do a lot of, we'll talk to you a little bit in advance about how you're going to use the account, what it's for, like what kind of trading activity do you, do you expect to do? Particularly if it's cross-border um, rather than just currency to currency in the same country. Uh, so we do a lot of work to understand you as a customer to make it easier then make the experience better. Basically, as well, and and that's an important thing. Think that gets sometimes gets lost in this whole fintech debate. People focus so much on the UX, yeah, that you end up basically people end up short circuiting what they should be doing on the regulatory side. Yeah, and that's why you say people coming from the outside sometimes don't appreciate the yeah. restrictions on the inside, yeah. and it's there for a reason. Exactly. Obviously, yeah. obviously, you know, the incumbents have played it very, very safe, which is like at, to the point of restricting the, the experience. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, I just want to go back to that point about IBAN numbers. And just as a classic example of just how, I don't know, just how sort of out of touch those are in the modern age is that, I mean, how many people have had the experience of when they're sending money through paper, you know, correspondence transfers, Googling the IBAN number of a bank? You shouldn't be doing that, right? I mean, I've, like, the bank doesn't publish it. It's not, even if you go onto the, the website, I mean, if you do internet banking and trying to transfer mm. money between, and it doesn't give you an IBAN number, I've had to go to Google and Google, and that's not safe, right? Because if I'm looking <laughs> up an IBAN number, yeah. I don't know where I'm getting it from. Yeah. And there are websites that just say ibannumbers.com, for example, and you can get them all at the banks. But it just shows incredible, something so basic in the customer experience is, is left out. You know, like now, I mean, you've, everybody's got a phone number and you've got mm. those sort of phone numbers attached to payments here. Yeah. But internationally, that just seems incredible how, of a ne- how much of a negative customer experience that is. And just... Like I look at that and thinking, well, surely somebody's got a vested interest in keeping it like that, because otherwise they would have fixed it. Yeah, well, I think the part of the reason is that banks, by their very nature, are national rather than international. Okay, so if you look at it, ultimately break the banking system down on a global basis, mm. there's not that many global banks. In fact, there are very few truly global banks. There are a lot of regional banks uh, and there are a lot of local banks. 
So there's no one party who has a vested interest in actually breaking this all down right. because there's no benefit. So the, the only global organization that deals with payments is SWIFT, right? That's owned by the banks hmm. globally, right? So again, there's no interest. They don't have any interest either in coming up with a new system to compete with themselves. So that's where people like us come in, which is, okay, you make this really simple by offering local banking basically to consumers hmm. or individuals. And if you map forward now a couple more years to your point on IBANs, as these new virtual, virtual banks appear on the scene and, and you know, get more and more licenses are granted by more and more countries, hmm. you'll end up with people like ourselves probably becoming digital or, or banks, proper banks. And then you'll end up with a bank account in multiple countries with your own bank account and you'll be able to become a like, digital nomad hmm. or whatever hmm. pretty efficiently yeah. and, and, you know, and generally work anywhere you want to, pay anybody you want to, in, hmm. in effectively in real time, right? Yeah. So you'll have a global bank account. And that's mm. ultimately one of the objectives of people like us is how do you end up with a, creating a global bank account for somebody in multi-currency that gives them access to make, you know, effectively a virtual bank yeah. account in any country. And then you don't have to go too far beyond that to go, oh, well, add lending and add other, other services on to money transfer or international yeah. payments, which is our core of what we're starting with. How, how do you, like in all of that, keep a focus on what those customers want? Because like what effectively you're doing is you're building... The, the starting point in building trust with customers like through payments but uh, that's not your end game is it it seems like now you can add in extra services with your community that you know that person now may want these other services mm. like for example loans or yeah. insurance for example you, you've now got data profiles of these customers right yeah. you understand what they're doing who they are why they're doing it and so on and, and importantly they trust you so therefore, to add something into that is pretty straightforward, isn't it? So how does that sort of game play out? Yeah, it is pretty straightforward, but at the same time, you, you should never lose sight of who your customer is and why they signed up with you in the beginning. Yeah. Right. So you, you have to retain your core focus of payments. Yeah, so the long, long term, we probably would offer other services to people depending on the need or demand that they mm. have. But the core for us is to really build a global payment infrastructure, which is as close to real time as we can make it um, and allow people to actually consistently save money. Right, you know, and that's whether to save for earlier retirement, whether to save money for on school fees, whether it's to save money on travel, or have just have money for better experiences for themselves or a better life for themselves if they, you know, if they're a domestic worker and they come here for mm. a couple of years and they go back. Um, that's the core. But you're right; like there are opportunities to offer other things in partnering with other people. Mm. Um, the one, I think, lesson that any everybody should learn from fintech is just because you're good at money transfer doesn't mean you understand how to make good loans. Yeah. <laughs> so. Yeah, right, and you've got a lot of these true. people offering these data models on. Well, you know, I can afford a loss rate of four or five percent of my loan book, and it'll yeah. all be good. Like that's the one thing that, by the way, the traditional banks do understand is mm. lending, because mm. they've been doing it for so long. Yeah, they know how to do it. Whereas it's how they make the money. It's how to make the money. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So in fact, the, the two biggest prof areas of profitability for most banks are foreign exchange yeah. and lending. Yeah. Foreign exchange tends to be a bit more hidden. You know, it's not as visible. Whereas lending is visible because everybody knows what margin alone, you know, loans are charged at. Yeah, yeah. Roughly what the cost of a loan is. What happens in the future when you, I mean, companies like Currency Fair do a better job of that than the banks and they lose effectively. You know, you're effectively eating away at the, the, the profitable parts of the bank and leaving them with just the unprofitable parts, which are, for example, retail banking. Nobody wants to open those high street bank stores but they have to, and they're quite unprofitable for them, right? Mm -hmm. So what, how does that future look? Where are we you know, in that space as customers? Wh what does it mean? What sort of role will banks play? Will they eventually just have to kind of outsource their front end to people like you? 
because they have that kind of infrastructure? That will they become just the carrier networks for all the the zeros and ones of money? Well, how, how does that look? Well, I think there's a couple of things. I mean, they they obviously will be what people sometimes call a transport network, right? Yeah. A set of rails that people like ourselves will use. And you know, banks are you know we're quite we're a very profitable customer for banks because we put a lot of transactions through a bank. We, they charge us fees for every transaction. Mm. So it's a good partnership from a bank's point of view. So there'll, there'll be more of that, right, from a banking point of view. There'll also be more, I think, probably focused on business banking because, like, large corporates, you know, it's hard to see a model where large corporates flock to fintechs. Yeah. You know, I think the yeah. large corporates and the treasury function, there'll always be a need for relationship banking at the large corporate level. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, now, and it's heavily regulated as well. It is. It? So yeah, exactly. And there's a lot of treasury function involved. Mm. And, and, and people, like, that doesn't really suit fintech because... Mm. The fintech model works better when there is less customer one-to-one engagement. You know, you have, oh, sure, you have customer support and you have, mm. but it works better in self-service models where you have an app, right? Mm. And you can make everything happen technology-driven. Um, so I think the banks, a lot more banks will focus on business products. Um, obviously, syndicated lending and large lending will never be a fintech phenomenon. Um, I think fintechs will do better at small lending, you know, whether it's short-term um, Lending out some like what Americans call payday loans, mm. or whether it's mm. like you know basically buy now pay later, um, which has taken off in a big way. People like, like Australia, but I think so. But banks will traditionally I think be moved more towards large businesses uh, and being and partnering with fintechs. And you're right, mm. there will be over time probably a lot less bank branches because there won't be a need. Yeah, like the new if you map forward 20 years from now when your average 20 something or 30 something today never goes to a bank branch, yeah. only ever uses an app. And probably has three or four bank accounts. You know, they may have an account with the traditional bank that their mom and pop had, and, and got in, or they got it in college. You know, mm. but they probably have accounts then with four or five other people, maybe including currency fair, where they use for specific purposes. Mm. And what's happening is, people are more com- comfortable now with specific purpose accounts. So you might yeah. have a specific card account, like debit card, where you can manage your expen- budget your expenditure. You might have a savings product from from a fintech company. You you could have a currency fair account, and you might even have a loan from somebody else and it's all all service to apps and people are comfortable enough with using using apps because yeah. it's a better experience right it's a better experience you get the best of all yeah and you can and you can have four say four accounts yeah. and the time it takes you to operate all four accounts it's still a lot less than going up and queuing in a bank branch yes absolutely right? so so that's the way the world's evolving so banks will i think partner will become back end so you'll yeah. find more banks will have white label products fronted by people like us yeah right? they become I, like mobile networks really for the, exactly. the front end media services if you like so. Effectively, yeah. So you you know you could end up with why wouldn't you why couldn't you have a bank, basically providing a loan portfolio, yeah, right to a fintech company in a co-branded environment yeah. where there, it's a some kind of revenue share or whatever, but the bank is still engaged in the, in the business of of lending to let's say millennials or whatever, mm. but the actual originator is the is the fintech, yeah, right. So you know because years ago people are paid agents to originate, right. So you, you know if you wanted a mortgage, you went to a mortgage broker. Mm. If you wanted a pension plan, you went to some retirement broker. So the whole broker model will be disenfranchised, I think, by fintechs who will originate mm. for banks. And that's where I think you'll see more and more partnerships over time. Yeah. It's an exciting space, isn't it? And I, I like, for example, the, the fact that it, it's not necessarily a, you know, a one or zero like end game for everybody. The banks are a key player in this. They do have to focus on what their core strength is, though. But at the same time, you have new entrants, you know, the currency fairs, a lot of fintechs, you have the neo banks and so on coming into the space who have this sort of radical focus on customer and building trust. And you mentioned Trustpilot as well. You know, how do you as a business, how do you as a CEO build a business around that? 
So where, you know, you know, you can say we're going to be customer centric. It's great that like Monday morning, it's like the email memos and so on. But how do you, you know, like Jeff Bezos style, you know, indoctrinate or make that part of your DNA? What do you do? How do you make your people obsess about customers and trust? I, well, I guess I've always done it, right? Because it goes way back to when I grew up you know, on a farm. My mother had a, had a B&B, right? So if a customer didn't like their breakfast or didn't like their experience, you, you didn't get paid. Yeah. So, is that right? Back in the day, yeah, back in the they day, right? Out. They, they might walk <laughs> out, right? So, so effectively, you know, that gets inbuilt into you. So, yeah. I've always had that DNA with like customer experience and making sure that customers got service. And even all the other business I had, so when I got the currency fair, it wasn't that difficult. So, like the way I do it is, you start at the top. So you treat your employees fairly. You actually yeah. make sure that they're all educated in what what's required, and you basically then make sure that every customer gets treated fairly and gets the best deal. Uh, and and obviously. You really focus in on the customer experience, right? And mm. I, I, we mean it in a good and bad way. Like you know, sometimes the worst customer experience tends is the better one for the company because yeah. you figure out well what went wrong, why did it happen, how can we make sure it never happens again, uh, and how can we improve? Because right, if customers never talk to you, that's not good either. Yeah, you know, in the sense of you just don't find out what they really want or what they really need. So we just drive we just drive it as part of our culture, right? Now it doesn't mean. You say yes to every customer because sometimes you just have to say no. Yeah, yeah. Um, they're not always right. They're not always right. Yeah, but but you do it in a nice way. Yeah, and you you do it in a, you know and and the trust pilot score is fantastic for us, right? Because it's just recognition from customers that we do a good job. Hmm. But we don't run the company by trust pilot. Like it, it's the end result of our DNA, which is to provide fantastic experiences for hmm. people and hmm. value for money. And it's like everything else. You might have a great experience. But if you've been overcharged and you find out you've been overcharged, it kind of take, it eats at you then. Yeah. So we start with, look, okay, let's explain to people how the service works, explain how, how they onboard, explain to people the value we provide. And we actually say to people sometimes, look, you should go elsewhere and check elsewhere because like, just don't believe what we tell you. Just mm. verify it. And that's why, for example, even the things like the calculator you showed earlier on our website, yeah. that's real-time pricing. So if you were actually doing something at that second, that's the price you get. So what we publish is what we give you. Mm. Now, obviously, the market changes in, in real-time all the time. So the time you actually open your account, it may have moved a little bit. So we believe in being open and transparent. That's a good start in terms of the DNA of the company. Yeah. Right. So unlike banks or brokers where you don't really know what you're getting into, Mm. Um, so it makes it easier to be honest to be open with people and then from mm. take the conversation from there and that's just what we just what we do yeah it starts with the people it starts with the people and absolutely. it starts with the leaders uh, yeah, and, and, and the management team and you know and everything they do and and they're all focused in on making sure customers get the right deal mm. you know uh, and get serviced and the way the company the way the marketplace works is like everything is going to the marketplace so consequently when you go to to, to sell currency right the first, the first, the way the technology works is it looks at the marketplace and sees is there any other customer going the other way, mm. who, and they get sold or serviced first, right? So their currency gets exchanged first, and then if there's no, the volume isn't there to meet you, then the company steps in and we have our current company rate, mm. um, and then we service it. But we always try to service customer to customer first, mm. even though we make less money on the customer to customer than we do with the company margin. But that's the way the company was established, uh, and that's what we believe in. And the customers actually know that, right? Regular customers know that they, they, they always get the best deal all the time. So you don't get a marketing price for your first deal, and, and then the, the price changes later. Mm. The price you get on day one is the same price you get three or four years later in terms of the margin. We don't change it every day. We just look at generally once a year. Mm. So people think build trust with you. And then trust equals good customer experience, because if you look at it, 
the brands with the best probably trust pilot or scores are generally the ones that have the highest level of trust between the cons- customer and the company. Yeah. Right. So you know, and, and and that's the culture you have to engender is how do you how do you build a culture of trust with your employees and a culture of trust between your employees and your customers. So tell me, how do you just sort of summarizing? How did you measure that in the qualitative way? And I think of um, many brands, for example, who have built great businesses and they have very strong engagement between customers and the brand. And for example, we were talking off air about Zero, you know, the, the accounting software platform, eight billion dollar valuation. Yet nobody loves accounts. And I say that because you yeah. come from the world of account. Nobody gets excited about ledgers and books, yeah. right? They get excited about what it does for people. So, and I quote the the Asian MD for Zero, Kevin, also from um, Dublin. Somebody walked up to him to the street and said, "You know, I love Zero because he was wearing a T-shirt." And he told him about you know building his business, and he was a small business owner, and so on. How for you? What are those sort of qualitative moments, or where you know that this is actually? impacting people obviously you've got the trust pilot score but where have you had that sort of that aha moment that this is what it's about uh, well actually when customers tell you what a difference it made to them like that's when it you really hits home you know like we and I probably the first one was probably about two years ago when you know we've been building up and, and pushing a lot in this small business to use the service and I actually met a guy who said to me I opened an account and I actually was paying two employees one in Poland I think and one in um, Stockholm and he said, I've just saved 3,000 euros. Wow. And it's just paid from me to send two sales guys on a sales trip to Australia to open a distributorship. And now I'm after getting my first Australian customer, which I wouldn't have done it if I hadn't saved the money of you guys. So you kind of, that's the kind of stories you get from people, right? And then, then he turned around and he said, but we don't, you know what I'm going to do now? I'm going to actually give the savings to the employees. So mm. I'm going to give them a pay rise indirectly because it wasn't going to cost him any more money because yeah. he moved it from a bank. Uh, and then you have like that's just one of hundreds like you know, we, um, we had some really funny ones we had a guy who wrote in to say we'd saved his marriage because <laughs> <laughs> he, he that was, was worth more than 3,000 yeah, probably he, he, he had uh, he was supposed to have paid some bill on behalf of his wife and he forgot oh. to do it and then he, he was in a hurry and we, he opened an account and he was able to get done it sorted in real time um, and people who are retiring you know going okay like I really was stressed out like trying yeah. to get my money moved and, and you guys helped me out so much um, so they're the kind of stories and we actually what we do is and back to your question earlier about how do you build build that engagement with your employees mm. around trust we publish all those stories in, internally in fact we publish them the good and the bad ones so if somebody has a complaint we actually publish the complaint uh, on, a, on a like a Slack message board internally yeah. so everybody gets to see what every, every customer says about us good and bad and then the bad ones, obviously, we look at and go, which, you know, thankfully, a, it's, it's like a one in a hundred. Mm. But you're going to go, okay, that, that's one more than we wanted. So why? Mm. Um, and then we basically talk about, and then we reward people. Like we actually, every month, we do an, an award um, where we reward the employees uh, who actually provide the best customer experience internally to their fellow colleagues. Yeah. So, uh, but, do I, but on the customer side, it's really when customers tell you how you've helped them. Mm. Right and how you know we uh, and la- in fact two weeks ago I we were looking at it, um, actually we were looking at in, in research in Japan as a possible market right so it just is the early stages of research and I met a guy uh, through somebody else who said uh, look I know a guy in Japan he's living there for ten years he understands the financial service market and he he be able to help you so I rang this guy up and his first thing he said to me you don't know who I am but three years ago I was stranded in Bangkok 
and I had Thai bat and I had no way to pay for my hotel in advance in Tokyo before I got there. Mm. I opened an account with you guys because uh, I had an account with you guys from when I was in the UK and you were able to get me sorted in two or three hours. So you actually saved me sleeping in some kind of hostel. <laughs> sleeping rough. And, and I, I said to him, great. And he says, I haven't forgotten that. And that's three years ago. Wow. You know, so like y y these stories come back all the time, basically about people who actually have made genuine savings and we've yeah. genuinely been able to help them. Uh, yeah. And that's what make, gives us, I suppose, the drive to keep it going and the drive to say, look, if, if that's one person or 10 people or 100 people, mm. why can't it be a 1,000 or 10,000? Yeah. Why can't you have fair financial services for everybody, not just those who can afford it, right? To, which is mostly what happens today because the un unbanked don't have a voice. Mm. You know, domestic workers don't have, a, they have to go to get paid in cash. They don't have the opportunity to make those huge savings. So that's what we're looking at. How do we then make this a, like a more global phenomenon? Fantastic. You heard it here first. That's Paul Byrne from Currency Fair. Thanks for coming into the studio. You're welcome. Saving money and marriages, apparently. <laughs> I love the stories as well. So keep, you know, keep sharing these stories because I think that's what it's all about at the end of the day. It's not about zeros and ones, is it? No, it's, a bit, it's about impacting people's lives in a positive way. Yeah. It's cool. Well, um, you know, I feel the, the positive vibes coming through today. And thanks for coming to the studio. All the best with your launches here in Asia and the drive to change things for the better with currency fair and just you know growing out the community as well so thank you thanks everybody um i think maybe you know the best way for people to find out about you is obviously just go to the website and sign up and get an account that's the easiest starting point but for those that maybe want to have those conversations with you at more of a strategic level what's the best way to contact you is it through linkedin are you open to yeah if people can me on linkedin they can contact me through the office like we have a pretty flat structure yeah because yeah. that's you know that's the easiest way to keep connected with your customers and your employees is to take out layers of management yeah um, so that's people can contact me pretty easy through linkedin or, or through any of the employees even here locally in singapore yeah Fantastic. Paul Byrne, CEO, President of Currency Fair. Thank you very much. Thank you. That was Pitch Deck Asia, powered by Pitch Media Asia. My name's Graham Brown. Pitch Deck Asia is a platform to give startups in Asia a voice. We give them a show to help them tell their story. And if you love these startup stories and like hearing more about the journeys of the founders, go and check out our SoundCloud channel, which is available at pitchdeck.asia slash SoundCloud. That's pitchdeck.asia slash SoundCloud. Head along to the channel, subscribe, follow us, and feel free to leave a comment or a rating on our channel as well. We'd love to hear your feedback.